0: I feel like if I were to change my name, I would strip myself of my identity. And that's something that I am not willing to compromise on. welcome to the Alien Chronicles, a weekly podcast about immigrant experiences. I have invited Lisa again, a guest from one of my previous episodes. For those listeners who did not listen to Lisa's episode, Lisa was born in Russia. She and her parents left Moscow in December 1989 on the verge of the collapse of the Soviet Union in hopes of resettling in America under a program for bringing Soviet Jews to the United States as refugees. Lisa is a lawyer by profession. Today's topic is very close to my heart. It's about how some people change their names to assimilate in the US. But before I start our episode, I would like to give our listeners a bit of the backstory. Lisa and I were at a coffee shop one day and you know how it is. The person at the checkout counter asked me for my name and Lisa's name so that they could call us when our order was ready. Lisa gave her name and then it was my turn to give my name. I instinctively started pronouncing my name phonetically and I even spelled it out assuming that the person at the counter wouldn't know. I feel like I am somehow hardwired to do that every time I go out or meet someone new. Lisa was surprised and this led to a long discussion about names And fast forward three weeks, we are here with our new episode about why people change their names to assimilate in the U.S. and why people like me, some people don't. Lisa, what do you think? Well, I think your moment
1: in that coffee shop where instead of just proceeding through the normal everyday routine of your day, you have to pause and think about how you're received and how your name is perceived and how it's going to sound different and alien in a way to the person you're speaking to is one reason why people make that change. You know, I think generations ago, it was much more pervasive to make that change because the perception of discrimination was so pervasive that I think most immigrant parents wouldn't have even considered giving their children a name that signified their cultural background for fear that their children would be discriminated against. Today, I think the picture is much more mixed. Mm -hmm. And in engaging in this conversation with some of your listeners and some of our friends, we've heard multiple sides of this equation. On, On the one hand, people who did change their name, and on the other, people for whom coming back to those cultural roots and giving their children A name that was tied to their cultural heritage was actually doubly important precisely because they wanted to combat discrimination in the society.
0: And I think the way I see my name, it's part of who I am, right? It's part of my cultural identity. It is part of my religious identity. It is a reference to my experiences. So for me, when I came to the U.S., like changing name was not something that I even thought about. And even to this day, I don't think about that because I feel like if I were to change my name... I would strip myself of my identity. And that's something that I am not willing to compromise on. And as you said, some people did not have choices because I think people who came in, I don't know, 70s or 80s, given the population, the number of immigrants that we had at the time, or even the consciousness of their existence, I don't think they people were consciously aware that these individuals existed as like ethnically diverse or culturally diverse individuals.
1: Yeah, I think you're so right. And I think it's the consciousness piece is so critical because there were immigrants and there were immigrants of different cultural backgrounds. But even the imagery, the metaphors that we used in that era versus today for what assimilation is, the metaphor of the melting pot versus the metaphor of the salad bowl is so telling of the expectation of what it meant to assimilate, that to assimilate meant to really melt into mainstream culture and to, in a way, shed your identity, including perhaps your name. Whereas today, I think there's a different image of what you're allowed to retain
0: when you assimilate. And also how we define America today. America is not a homogenous place anymore. We have a diverse group of people who are culturally diverse, who are ethnically diverse. Uh, We hear different accents. We hear different names. And to be able to present yourself as ethnically diverse is more acceptable, as you said, now than it was maybe 30, 40 years ago. I think that's true. And I think that's
1: largely in part to the fact that prior generations of immigrants put themselves out there and put themselves and their children on the line in a culture that was a lot less accepting to make their differences more visible. That precisely because they made those choices in a harder and in a more dangerous, a lot of ways, time, they allowed future generations to feel more comfortable, more able to retain that identity. But as we see today, this is not you know linear progress. We're unfortunately today seeing the rise of xenophobia, and again, and we're questioning how possible it is to continue to sort of. A very outwardly manifest difference in a society that seems to be making a little bit of a U-turn in terms of our acceptance.
0: So Lisa, there is a backstory to your name as well, right? Because you moved from Russia when you were only nine. Yeah, so it's funny, it really was only after we had this coffee
1: cup moment together that I started thinking about my name more and thinking about it in a multi-generational perspective. And I came to realize that I didn't really think very hard. I don't remember any conversation around changing my name. My given name, the one that I came with from Russia, was Yelizaveta Ilyenichna Gen, mm-hmm. which sounds really different from Elizabeth Gen. And I don't remember a lot of discussion surrounding whether it was even remotely in the cards for me to keep that name. Yelizaveta um, has an English equivalent, which is Elizabeth. And somehow I came to be holding a pen over a social security card, and somehow by that point, I had learned how to write in the English alphabet and I wrote out Elizabeth with an S. I had no idea that this was a European spelling or it was more typical to spell your name with a Z in English. And also no one contemplated trying to give me an American middle name instead of the patronymic that I came with. Patronymics for those listeners who, um, who may not know are... Your father's name with a suffix that is different depending on whether you're male or female. And so my father's name is Ilya or Ilya. Once again, you'll notice it sounds quite different. And so I had a patronymic that was his name with a suffix, Ilyishna. That went away without any discussion because obviously that was way too different and too bizarre to keep and nothing was in its place. So all that to say that without too much thought, We did what it seemed to make sense to do, to have an American name, and yet it still carries with it all of these different questions.
0: Obviously, I have my ethnic name on my resume and I was looking for jobs and my friends were like, you know, you need to change your name to American name. And I understand where they're coming from because you and I were talking about this study, right? Which was done by Harvard Business uh, School recently where they found out that job applicants who consciously change their name and change them to like white names, they whiten their names, they are twice as likely to get callbacks. So I completely understand why some people would change names? Because at the end of the day, some do it out of necessity, right? But when I think about it, even if I were to change it on my resume, like if I got a call and I if I were to go in person, they would know that I am not a white person. I don't look white. I don't sound white. So why change that name? What do you think? To me, it's more like by
1: changing your name, you're not advancing the cause of other people who look like you who want to keep their names. So if anyone is hurt, potentially it's other immigrants who want to live in a society where qualified job applicants look all ways and have all kinds
0: of names so that employers come to see all of those applicants as equal. I want to go back to this point because when what I see is like if an employer is discriminating based on my name, my ethnic name, and I don't get a call back because of my name, then they probably in their minds, which obviously I do not at all agree with, they somehow have this preconceived notion of what my name or my personality would entail. Like maybe they think I cannot speak English fluent. Maybe they are discounting my intellect. And to me, the onus of that should lie with the employer and not with me. And I think that's the point that you were trying to make as well, because Why should I change my identity, as you said, to promote some kind of soft bigotry on the part of an employer? Absolutely. You know,
1: I think you bring up a really important point about there are cases of overt conscious bias. And then for every one of those, there are also many cases of implicit bias, you know, where the employer doesn't consciously go through that that thought process that you just outlined, but they just instinctively, without examining it, go to an applicant that has you know, as you describe a mainstream white or anglicized name, or look at the resume and see, you know, a name in conjunction with life experiences that they consider more, quote unquote, typical white American experiences, you know, again, without examining the assumptions that they're making. And as you say, I think this whole question is about the burden, who bears the burden of making our society more representative, who bears the burden of changing employment practices so that our workplaces are more representative, who bears the burden of changing, you know, media representation. And the more that people who do have these different names or different cultural and ethnic identities change their names or attempt to kind of whitewash identities to fit in, the more it perpetuates the notion that the average American is a white male and that the average woman is a white woman, even though, you know, I want to say, I want to go back to the idea of no judgment. You know, people are just trying to get by and living in a racist society and an ethnocentric society is really difficult and people need jobs. So I also don't want to judge the choices that people make, but this question of, you know, who bears the burden is a really important one. How can we shift the burden to the employer's to change their assumptions and their practices so that this choice of what you do with your name is
0: not so fraught. I was listening to the, this podcast. It's it's one of my favorite podcasts and I will not name it. <laughs> but um, there was this discussion, the guest on that particular episode was um, Indian American entrepreneur. Her father had come from India and he, this was in 70s when he came and he wasn't getting any callbacks for interviews. So he changed his name and she was narrating this story about how her father had to change his name. And the host said something, and I am again paraphrasing, um, said something like, oh, this is so cute and it's okay. It really offended me. I can understand that there was little thought put in that response. So maybe the host was not consciously trying to undermine ethnic names or ethnic identities. But the way I heard it was, some people think it's extremely easy to do that. It's easy to give up on your name, name that you've had for I don't know, 20 years, 25 years, your identity and what it means. It's important to understand the kind of impact that it has on individuals. And Lisa, you were sharing a story about a friend of yours. Yeah, I have a friend who shared in response to our um, putting out there that we were doing
1: this What's in a Name episode, who shared the story that uh, when he was growing up, he was in a really small, predominantly white conservative town in Alabama. uh, And he was one of just a handful of Asian American kids and he had a Korean middle name and his memory of this time was that you know, he was made fun of, that if the name ever came up, that it would be the subject of ridicule. And now as an adult, he just had his first child, a baby boy, and he and his wife very proudly decided to give their son a Korean middle name, which had just so much significance to him, precisely because he wanted to own that and to give that to his child and to create, you know, a world around his son where his son would know love and support around this part of his identity instead of the ridicule that he faced. Do you
0: think it's also part of the evolving demographic in the U.S.? It has more to do with that, that people are feeling comfortable accepting their identities, their ethnic names, their accents? I think so. Um, As I said, in my view, it's not a
1: linear progression. We take some steps forward and we take some steps back. And I think... Part of what's been happening recently is it's not even just so, so much a matter of things changing, but of things being brought to light that when we pay attention to representation, for example, and I very consciously want to use the word representation instead of diversity, because mm-hmm. to me, diversity signifies plucking out some number of people of color or people of a different ethnic background to diversify and enrich a mainly white pool. And representation is really about giving everybody a chance and creating a whole landscape where everybody's cultures are represented. And it's for the benefit of, of everybody and not just for the benefit of sort of diversifying or enriching the environment that you're in. When we focus on representation and we make that a priority, then we notice how much it's lacking. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I, I just read a statistic, although it's now a couple of years old, that of the 500, you know, agreed upon best films of all time, only six had uh, protagonists who were women of color. So, once you start running the statistics, that's what you see. Um, so, you know, particularly talking about film and TV, the Oscars so white hashtag and movement brought attention to a problem with the Oscars. But when you look at TV and entertainment in general, you just see how rare it has been to have protagonists who are not, I mean, white families or representing typically white experiences. And, um, you know, one of the things I read, uh, it gave a lot more statistics about the lack of representation and it made it a goal to achieve representation of ethnic and racial minorities and women and women of color in proportion to how many of us there are in the population. So if there's a certain percentage of people who are, let's say, Asian Pacific Islander, then this is what you want to see, you know, represented in your TV shows and your movies. Um, And I sat back and I thought about this and I said, that doesn't sound like nearly enough, because if you have lifetimes of having no representation at all, and you start very, very, very slowly building just toward achieving your very, you know, small percentages, then you're never going to actually make people realize that your average American is not blonde and blue-eyed. And so it seems like you need to really overshoot that. And it's actually quite similar to conversations we're having about gender representation. For example, another discussion was about how that I've read was about how to diversify by corporate boards in which there are so few women. And they said, if you started hiring 50-50 men and women or bringing them 50-50 onto corporate boards, it would take 40 years for corporate boards to actually be 50-50 because you're starting with such a structural disadvantage. So I think the same thing here. I think we should flood the airwaves with representations of all kinds of people, regardless of how many of them there are in the population, because we're starting so far behind and seeing images of different kinds of
0: lives. And that's such an important point. And I do want to clarify one thing here that when we talk about representation and even when we talk about women, women of color have different experiences than white women. Like when I look at myself and I call myself intersectional feminist. And the reason I do that is because I feel like I have additional layers of discrimination or my experiences that may not be similar to a white feminist because of where I come from because of the way I look, because of the way I sound. And as you pointed out, it's so, so incredibly important to have that representation. And But Lisa, what scares me with representation is that sometimes it just translates into tokenism. And that's where we have to understand if we are representing a minority group or a marginalized group, we should present it in a way where we give them the creative liberty. And it's not just a token in a film or a movie or on TV to check that box and say, you know what, we have this number of people of color or women and we are done. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I I think you're totally right. And I think that that brings up kind of two separate points. One is who is doing the production? Who are the producers? Who is doing the casting? Who is doing the directing? Who is the screenwriter? Because even if you are representing a story in which people of color or immigrants or a particular ethnic group are at the center, if the people who are doing the production are not themselves you know, of that background and really steeped in it, then you do run the danger of really misrepresenting or, as you say, tokenizing. And then the second point brings me back to what I said before, the need to flood the airwaves, because no one story is every story. And so if you have a story that is about a Muslim American family. There's not one kind of Muslim American family. If you have hundreds of stories about white American families, like every single sitcom ever showing all of the ways in which they vary, showing uh, differences in socioeconomic status and culture and, um, you know, countries of origin and how those families comport themselves and what their values are, then just having one show is going to run the risk of teaching everybody that that's the one kind of Muslim American family that exists. And in fact, there's just as much variety within every immigrant culture or every ethnic culture in the United States as there is among white Americans.
0: There are stereotypes in America that exist and and breaking those stereotypes is harder. For instance, I've seen like in the past few years, um, Muslim shows where they would show a normal Muslim family because um, Muslims are stereotyped as terrorists. Um, No surprises there. But if they do, I feel like those shows are unfortunately shelved. I think people in America, they don't see Muslim women as independent or, or vocal or even sexy or whatever. So how do we break away from that? I always struggle with the notion, how do we break away from that? It's so hard. I
1: think you're so right. It's, you know, it's one thing to create the content and it's another thing to create the demand or to break through people's stereotypes of what should be and their um, sort of impulse to click past something that doesn't agree with their preconceived notions. And I think that the point that you bring up about how Muslim women are perceived is so important and even separate and apart from the other unfortunate stereotype that you mentioned that Muslims are terrorists, which of course is still out there even all these years after 9-11. The perceptions of Muslim American women and Muslim women the world over are fed not only by rhetoric from the right, but actually by totally well-intentioned, often accurate descriptions of the experiences of some Muslim women that are coming from progressive organizations, that if our source of information about who a Muslim woman is, is are coming from Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International that is profiling the true and actual subjugation of Muslim women in some places, in some parts of the world, or in some subsets of um, Muslim societies, that becomes this dominant narrative that it's hard to break through. And so people don't imagine a Muslim woman as sexy. Don't imagine a Muslim woman as as emancipated. Don't imagine a Muslim woman in the workplace. Even though there are obviously a lot of Muslim women who are all those things or some of those
0: things. And I'll give you an example. Remember when, when Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman, she cursed. She used the word motherfucker, right? President Trump said something along the lines, oh, she's dishonored her family. She didn't dishonor her family because if that is the case, then I probably dishonor my family like 50 times a day or something. So because I curse a lot. They, they prepared for some Saudi yeah. <laughs> in this episode. Yeah, I'm just trying not to. I'm, I'm trying not to. But that's the thing. So we were going to talk about assimilation in broader terms as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think one of them that we already started talking about is accents and this idea of the neutral accent, you know, shedding one's accent is so essential to assimilation. And this always makes me think of the way that my conversations go with people when I reveal that I'm an immigrant. It's this big, like surprising <laughs> like, magic trick that I perform. Like, guess what? I am a totally different person than you thought I was, except I'm the same person you were just talking to. And one of the things that happens is that people say, but you have no accent. And I know that people mean and if any of you are listening who have said this to me please don't take offense <laughs> i know people um people are really being kind when they say that but i think what people don't realize when they compliment me by the same token they're in a way diminishing those who have accents and suggesting that they didn't do as well as i did at assimilating and i think you know it really brings up for me a question like what does it mean to assimilate and What are we assimilating into? And if we still have in our mind the idea that there is some one monolithic thing that is America, one just big, homogeneous, you know, melting pot, to use the language that we used a couple of decades ago, then, of course, then people who didn't shed their accents are not doing as well as I did. People who didn't change their names are not being as good an immigrant as I am because they didn't melt themselves into the pot but if we really change our frame of reference and we think of America as what it actually is which is already incredibly heterogeneous already shaped by all of these different cultures then maybe we should actually ask be asking a totally different question instead of always asking how is this immigrant group assimilating which is in a way asking you know are they threatening in some way are they so different that they're threatening our american norm like let's just smooth things over and make them more american Could we be asking, you know, how are they enriching our society? How are they contributing? Um, And not to suggest that they aren't, but really with curiosity, like how does this make America a more interesting, vibrant place to be,
0: to have these groups that manifest their identity? I grew up in a very homogenous society, and it's easier to do things. And yes, it's easy to associate with other people when you are in that homogenous society. But I think societies that are, I believe, in fact, societies that are more diverse, they have so much more to offer. That's what fascinates me when I listen to somebody else's accents and especially guests that I have interviewed who've had such amazing stories and different accents. And when those accents come together in a conversation, they just sound beautiful to me. But again, maybe that's because I am an immigrant and I have more empathy. I don't know.
1: Yeah. You know, well, this is where we, we ask our listeners, you know, how does it sound to you? But this is something that really struck me Having listened now to a number of episodes of the Alien Chronicles podcast, in those episodes, Sadia, where it was you and another, particularly another woman who had an accent, how beautiful it was and also how rare it was to hear both of the speakers have accents and to have this dialogue, you know, in an environment of parody, it makes me realize that even, you know, in some of our very, very beloved platforms, like, you know, our beloved NPR, there is such an expectation that the person who is in a position of power or authority, definitely, if not both people, should have broadcast ready, you know, what that means, again, in in a mainstream context, Very neutral, not even southern, I mean, neutral, midwestern, perfect, you know, flowing accents. And to hear something different, it really struck me how powerful that was and how rarely in any context, whether on the radio, on the news, regardless of what the person looks like, that voice, the voice of authority, the person who tells you whether it's the weather or
0: the latest news or whatever it is, has to sound kind of like this. That's so true. And when now I'm thinking about all like the shows on NPR that I listen to so diligently, and you're right, the names may sound different, and they may be ethnic, but the sound and the accent is the same. And you're right, maybe there is something to be had there. Maybe that's a conscious decision, or maybe it's not. I don't know. But you're right. Again, it goes back to what people are comfortable with. Because I'll tell you something, my name is not that difficult to pronounce, right? Right. But And so I am like instinctively every time I am with Verizon or whoever on phone or in person, I just spell it out and I pronounce it phonetically. But my A's and E's are different. So the way I pronounce my A, people think I'm saying E. Mm. So I have to spell my name at least five times before. And then in the end when I'm like, okay, A as in like Apple. And that helps me a lot because I can keep on saying A and they will think it's E. And you're right. This is like, maybe that's why people who have accents, they you don't see them in media or on TV because the general consensus may be that, People will not understand that.
1: Yeah, and I I think it gets back to, you know, a kind of a bigger picture topic that we keep coming back to, which is how do you share the burden? You know, from the perspective of these, of the employers or the people who produce these programs, they say, our listeners are not going to want to do any work. They're going to want to listen and they, want, they yeah. want someone else to do the work for them. They're not going to squint and try a little bit harder and overcome a little bit of their assumptions about what the voice should sound like to understand the difference between your E and their A. Let's just make it really easy for them and let's spoon feed them the accent that they know best. And by doing that, perpetuate the notion that this is what every expert sounds like.
0: <laughs> That's so true. So I was reading that the, like about this established theory in psychology which says that influences of name on behavior is that like people gravitate towards what is similar. Like they gravitate towards people, places, things that are similar to them. Mm-hmm. And they always have positive view of who they are, whether yes. it's mm-hmm. the way they look, their accents, um, the way they present themselves and whoever looks like them or sounds like them, they gravitate towards that. So maybe many people here, like they are not making a conscious decision to to discriminate or not understand somebody else's accent. I think they are just hardwired to believe that, you know, everybody who looks like us, because I think we are all similar in that sense. Like maybe when I look at someone who looks like me and sounds like me, I may feel more comfortable. So that's the notion that probably like justifies some of their actions. But then again, we'll have to revisit how we, we look at people and their names and their accents. Yes, I think
1: we definitely have to do that. When we start conversations about implicit bias and that we're all fallible and we're all human and we all share these traits that psychologists know about, then maybe we can get somewhere. And where I hope we can get to, perhaps, is that we have kind of cultural competency and undoing implicit bias training and education in our schools. You know, we look, for example, at Starbucks and they did what? They did a half day Yeah, only half day. One half day for all their employees (laughs) and implicit bias, which I guess is more than an hour. But it's a whole lot less than what it takes to kind of remake a whole society. And the place where things start is really young. You know, we, from the moment that our eyes open and we start to receive the world, we start making inferences and we start making assumptions. And, you know, having little kids, I see this all the time. Their synapses are always firing. They're looking who do they see what colors the skin of the people that they see in different places doing different kinds of work and as hard as it is to have conversations about it i know if you don't have conversations about it they're going to start making fundamentally race-based assumptions about the world.
0: Let me ask you this, because I haven't even asked you this question. I know you're an immigrant, but to me, yeah, you like, again, I would say that I'll obviously perpetuate the same stereotype that you don't sound like it, like, because your accent is, you don't have an accent or the way I see it, you have an American accent. So it's like, so according to this society, I don't have an accent, but that's because we just don't have a broader view. Yeah, exactly. So when you look at people who have different accents or different names.
1: How do you approach it? So many of these things happen subconsciously, as we said, that you know, I also have to do the work of unpacking what are my expectations about how hard somebody has to work to make themselves understood to me. So if I'm in a conversation with somebody who has an accent, even with you when we first started talking, I have to make a conscious decision that I'm not just going to cross my arms and sit back in my chair and take a sip of coffee and wait for you to do all the work to make yourself understood and remind me that when you say A, you mean A for Apple, yeah. I'm just going to assume that we're equal in the conversation yeah. and that my, I have to do, you know, mental work to understand you or to understand somebody with an accent. And I think that that's not a universally shared understanding, even among people who are progressive. So even if people have the the attitude of wanting to be accepting, and this is like a theme that's running through our conversation, it takes work to actually manifest that in the way that you relate to other people.
0: I think what you said is like, I think it's like, I feel like for the last over a decade now I've been in the U.S., I think you're right. I have taken up the responsibility of explaining my name, my accent, my religion, my identity to others. And that's where your uh, makes so much sense is that I would be very happy (laughs) if somebody else shared this burden with me. It is a burden. And I think this is
1: coming up in a lot of conversations that we have been having in parts of our society, particularly since the 2016 election there are a lot of people who are really tired of the burden of having to explain to you know white people in this country to their white friends or on facebook groups you know, what it means to have their burden or what it's like to be in their skin in this country and to have the experience that they're having. In a very mundane example, you know, me sort of jumping a little bit in uh, when you ordered your coffee and, you know, you had to repeat it and you had to spell it. It wasn't that I actively thought Sadia doesn't have to do that, but it's just I don't live in your skin every day. And that was just a little glimpse of on a daily basis, what it's like to look and sound different. But it is, intrinsically tiring to, to have that experience, I'm sure. And then to also be burdened with having to explain it and explain that this is what it's like. And this is how white people perpetuate the burden by not sharing it is exhausting. You know, it reminds me of this actually beautiful metaphor that a friend of mine used for activism in general. She's a singer in a choir and she talked about How when a choir sings, you hear a sustained sound, but it doesn't mean no one is breathing. It's just that people take turns taking breaths and replenishing their air and then just kind of join in the sound again. And to me, that's when I visualize this work, this burden, unfortunately, that people have who are not mainstream white Americans If enough people participate, then everyone gets to breathe. No one can carry that burden all the time equally and in every moment constantly be teaching and explaining and representing in an active way. But perhaps if a lot of people are doing it, then everybody can just take the breaks that they need to stay sane.
0: And to that point, I actually wrote an article for one of the newspapers where I do explain that burden, it lies on both sides, like the way I see immigrant communities here, I've always said that it's important for immigrant communities to interact with their neighbors, with their, you know, friends who, who are not a part of their community, but to reach out to, you know, other people. And I think that is also extremely crucial and extremely important, because sometimes as immigrants, we don't interact, we don't have this kind of dialogue, and we try to steer clear of conversations that are difficult. I've seen it among my friends. I've seen it with my own family. Immigrants, they become risk averse the minute they land wherever they're supposed to land. They just don't want to create any controversy to say something that may offend anybody. And to be honest, maybe it was like 2016 elections was a trigger or something. I just feel like I'm done with being quiet and letting somebody else define me. So I guess that's also important that like you and I are having these conversations initially as acquaintances and now as friends, other people can have these conversations as well. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to say, I'm so glad
1: that you got loud. I'm so glad you're done with being quiet. Yeah. Your voice is so important and it's different. And even, you know, I, I think we have just such visceral reactions, even to the sound and and to hearing different stories and to hearing them, you know, in this wonderful medium that allows new voices to enter the conversation. And I, I hope, uh, kind of as you say, I think we share the goal that the best thing that people can do in response to this is to initiate their own conversations. But, you know, one of the challenges that I thought about, as you were saying, how important it is for immigrants and immigrant communities to put themselves out there and to interact with others is, you know, the study that came out a few years ago in 2014 that said basically three quarters of white Americans have entirely white
0: social circles. And I'm not surprised. Right. This is not surprising. And so what do we do with that? I don't think it's just white people not interacting with immigrants or people of color for that matter, not just immigrants. I don't want to uh, narrow it to immigrants only and vice versa. I think it's important to feel more comfortable around people who don't look like you. I think it just boils down to the same thing that you and I were talking about. People are comfortable when they are hanging out with people who look like them because they feel they're scared that at some point the conversation will become uncomfortable. And there is so much history, whether it's African-Americans and whites, whether it's Muslims and whites or even Jews and Muslims. I think this whole notion of, oh, the conversation will become uncomfortable at some point. So let's not have a conversation. Right. Yeah, and that's very human
1: too to just shirk it and say it's easier this other way. And I think, you know, one of the things that perhaps is very unintentionally contributing to people's fear of having conversations and to people's fear of entering into friendships or kind of starting starting a friendship with somebody who is different from them might be the fear of doing something wrong or saying something wrong or offending people. And I think, You know, especially in today's internet culture, I think that fear is legitimate. You know, I've definitely had questions and thoughts that I felt like were probably ignorant in the sense that I just didn't know enough. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, about the diversity of experiences of Muslim women in the United States. I mean, that's an area where I can say, I don't know a lot about this. Mm But I certainly on the internet, you know, feel uncomfortable asking questions for fear that I'm going to sound ignorant, which is itself bad, or that I'm going to be called out for saying something that's wrong. And so, you know, again, it gets back to this idea of people are really tired in a lot of ways. Um, And so they're tired of ignorance and they're tired of answering questions. So I think, you know, we have a little bit more of this shift to just, castigating or maybe shaming when people say something that's ignorant and saying, you know, this is really unacceptable in 2019. But I, I do think, you know, looking with some compassion, again, not at people who are being intentionally cruel or intentionally racist, but at people who are just everybody has the limits of what they know. You know, there was an Onion article, which was kind of one of those funny, not funny articles <laughs> saying if everybody just grew up in the exact same town that I did and had the exact same parents and the exact same upbringing and went to the exact same school and did all the exact same things and traveled to the same places and ate the same food, then they would think exactly the way I do. Yeah. You know, and that's it's funny, not funny, because of course that's true of all of us. And so that signals to me to turn on my compassion when it comes to my, myself in the areas that I'm ignorant and others who are who are trying to learn because I think Through that compassion, we could invite more people into dialogues that are uncomfortable and then
0: they could actually grow past their prejudices. Yeah, I'm so curious to know what people think. Like what have been their experiences in terms of their own names or somebody else's names or accents or or this idea of what assimilation looks like. And what we would do is that if you guys write to us or you tweet by using the hashtag what's in a name, if your response is interesting or if we find it intriguing, we will share it on our next episode because we are absolutely going to have another episode where we will talk about more about like race, gender, wealth, and how that impacts um, communities of color and even white communities. And, and we'll talk about all of that. But do write to us because we we look forward to getting your feedback. It's extremely, extremely important for us. And with that, we, we end our conversation. It was so much fun having Lisa as a co host. And I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with Lisa and talking about all the different things and things that she and I probably thought about in the confines of our homes, but never discussed them on the air. It's fun to get out of our heads and uh, and into each other's
1: a little bit and, and hopefully start a conversation that can go beyond this one. So thank you guys.
0: Keep listening and keep sharing. Bye. Bye.